Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 22nd, 2021, and my guest is poet and author Dana Joya. His latest book is Studying with Miss Bishop, Memoirs from a Young Writer's Life. I want to thank Plantronics for providing today's guest with the Blackwire 5220 headset. And I want to let listeners know that our poll of your favorite episodes of 2020 is closed and results will be available soon. Dana, welcome to Econ Talk. Glad to be here. Your book is a very short, very beautifully crafted set of memoirs about a handful of people who influenced your career as an aspiring writer and poet. But I want to back up a bit and talk about an essay you wrote about 30 years ago in The Atlantic that got a great deal of attention. The title of that essay was, Can Poetry Matter? One theme of that essay was that, is that poetry matters a lot less than it once did. Uh, what do you think happened? Well, let me uh, recapitulate the, you know, the argument in my book. I, I point out a, a cultural paradox that there has never been a country in the history of the world that has paid more people to profess poetry. <laughs> um, we have, you know, 100,000 you know, people teaching poetry. We have poetry foundations. We have poetry readings. We have poetry residencies. And yet, there's probably never been a great nation in which poetry mattered less than it did to the United States in the 90s. And um, the assumption in the academy, if you ask the academy, they will say, well, people never liked poetry because it's too challenging, this, that, and the other. But the fact is, if you go back and you look at history, poetry was enormously popular in the United States. It was read by all classes of people. I know this from my own experience, and you and I were chatting before the uh, you know this, this session. I had a Mexican grandfather who was a cowboy, a vaquero. Uh, he'd gone to fourth grade. He knew you know, dozens of poems by heart. My mother, a Mexican-American working-class kid from L.A., knew dozens and dozens of poems by heart. Poetry was part of the culture. The Sicilians would get together and they would recite poems in dialect. And so there was a disconnect there, which is what happened uh, that made America lose its mass audience for poetry. You know, at a point like at the end of Longfellow's life, his birthday was a public holiday. So you know, what went on. And so I, you know, tied it together. And I just say, well, I think there's an obvious smoking gun, which is that as we brought the poets out of Bohemia into the university, you created a profession of poetry. And, you know, and, you know, I don't want to cast any aspersions on lawyers, but, you know, it's, you know, it's a lot like an independent, you know, warrior for justice becoming a member of a firm. Your behavior changes. You have to have a collective identity. Poets began to, in a sense, you know, uh, treat each other with professional courtesy. They never gave bad reviews because they may lose some of the benefits. So ironically, the more benefits we gave poets, the less they mattered to society. Now, I ended the article to 
it's just saying that I believed in poetry's vitality. I believe that poetry represents our most concise, memorable, and moving way of using words to describe the human condition, and that the appetite for poetry remained. And if we could reconnect the audience, you know, with poetry, there would be enormous cultural energy. Now, if if I can still talk for one second, I want to point out two things. First of all, this article generated more mail than any article in the history of the Atlantic Monthly on any subject. So this astonished the you know the editors because they chose not to make it a cover article. They said, well, you know, this is too specialized. But we got letters from diplomats, from farmers, from soldiers, from bankers. I mean, this is when people still wrote letters. I would get these boxes full of letters. So what it said is that there was an audience out there that liked poetry. And the interesting thing, now, you know this, I'm sure, and I'm probably, I bet all of your, your viewers who are probably very you know, pr- successful professionals and intellectuals and academics, you know when people write letters, are they happy or unhappy? Unhappy. They're usually, <laughs> yeah, they're usually <laughs> negative letters. 90% of the mail was positive. They said, yes, he's right. And the other interesting thing is if you took the negative letters that, you could actually, that weren't written by mad people, you know, because you get you know, a certain amount of insanity. Uh, all of the letters that said I was wrong were by people who identified themselves, self-identified, as members of creative writing departments. <laughs> and that seemed to me to prove the case. If you criticize an industry, and absolutely everybody in society agrees with you except the people in that industry, there is, at the very least, a disconnect. There's another point I'm, I'll maybe make later, but let's go, you know, I don't want to talk too long. No, that's all right. Um you write in your book, I, I love this, you say, our inner lives are as rich and real as our outer lives, even if they remain mostly unknowable to others. Perhaps that is why books matter so much. They serve as intimate companions. Some books guide us, others lead us astray, a few rescue or redeem us. All of them confide something of the wonder, joy, terror, and mystery of being alive. And I've been thinking recently a lot about how hard it is for people to convey their inner lives to others, either out of fear uh, or just the inability to express themselves. And for me, poetry is a way that we can understand emotions and experiences of others as well as ourselves that we can't put into words. Uh, Would you agree with that? Yeah, I do. Um, Even the people we know most intimately, we don't fully understand their inner lives. And for strangers, you know, we, you know, surmise, you know, something that's going on. Just think of how many times, you know, you're with somebody, you kind of sort of wonder what they're thinking. Now, the great thing of literature, and this is, literature is distinct from film and other theater, which are forms of, of storytelling. But the beauty of the novel and poetry is that they essentially are our cultural machinery for uh, articulating the inner lives of people. And in fact, the novel is based on, and this, the very definition of the novel, although people never talk about this, is based on irony, which is to say, you know, somebody's outer life is doing this and their inner life is doing that. And you, you know this from the very beginning, Don Quixote. He thinks he is a great you know, chivalric warrior, everybody else realizes he's, just a, he's a slightly dotty old man. And so the whole novel is about the, the difference between what he thinks, this beautiful woman that he's, this great, 
you know aristocratic you know uh, you know sort of maiden that he's that he's encountered and somebody else realized it's a prostitute and so you know and that's what it's about but you know in a much subtler way uh, what the novel does is give us a machinery by which we can begin to learn how complicated everybody else's inner life is and it's and also to articulate how complicated ours are you know poetry takes you know this uh 500 page you know thing and they and puts it into 14 lines I mean, right now i'm reading a wonderful novel you know cousin bet cousin bet by balzac you know and it's about all of these you know completely corrupt french you know aristocrats you know dealing with each other you know and their inner lives are are just sheer messes uh, but it's it, it's wonderful balzac is wonderful about explicating the weird motivations that drive people you know, which may or may not be apparent to others. I've been thinking about how hard it is to convey certain life experiences to people before they've had a chance to experience them. We've been talking on the program a number of times about uh, what past guest L.A. Paul calls the vampire problem. Once you're a vampire, it seems pretty great, but before you're a vampire, it seems like horrifying. And I would suggest that marriage uh, has some of that characteristics. I think people who aren't married look at marriage as a uh, life ender and or life deadener at times yeah. and and the those who people who aren't married or who don't have children for example struggle to access the inner life of that experience which is a huge part of it it's not the joys of marriage are not visible on the on the outside in general or parenting uh, and so i think what poetry does is it allows us to put the the things we can't articulate or, again, don't want to uh, into some form of communication so that if, if you'd like, you can actually you can learn something. Let me start by commenting on a different question than you asked, but to agree with you. Anyone who has ever had a child understands you're a per this person one day and then suddenly all of these switches go on inside you. The experience is like hitting puberty. You know, before you you hit puberty, you look at this stupid stuff that adults do, like, well, you know, why are they doing it? You hit puberty, and you understand. Uh, and in child, you know, having kids is the same way. And you and you understand. I think every parent understands that. You know, part of the profound destiny of being human is to bring new life into the world, and to raise it. And when it happens, you know, it's it's Pentecostal, you know, it's like tongues of flame appearing on your head. And it, it is, it's impossible to describe this without sounding like you're having cliches. But when you have it, when you see it happen to your friends, I mean, I have a brother who was, you know, uh, you know, a, a free spirit, I guess is the proper, proper word for it. But he finally got married at 50 and he had two kids and, you know, he became a fundamentally different person. And he also became much, much happier. And so, you know, I think the, I think we miseducate our children. We miseducate our adolescents uh, because we don't know how to use literature, poetry especially. If I give you a poem in school, what's going to happen next? You know, show me the inner meaning. Write a paper. So poetry is analyze linked. it. Yeah, to analysis, to conceptual thought. But poetry is not conceptual thought. If you're writing a poem, you're using language fundamentally differently from how a 
An economist would use it. I mean, you are using things in an, a semi-abstract language to make it absolutely clear about a general case. But poetry, even if it's about big issues, is always about a particular case. And so a poet uses words in such a way that they don't address primarily your intellect. They simultaneously address your intellect, your emotions, your physical senses, your memory, your intuition uh, in a way which does not ask you to divide them. And so it's it's essentially holistic language. And I know holistic is a word that makes people feel, oh my God, do you want me to eat bran and, and bean sprouts? But poetry is holistic language which addresses the entire human being. Now you say, well, that's kind of you know intellectual, but here's the key. Most of us, most of the time, experience the life in that we lead you know, holistically. You know, these things happen to us, we're sort of semi-sorting them through. So what poetry does is actually address people in the language by which they live their lives, where an economist has to, in a sense, create a new language which is more disciplined, more consistent, and clearer than what experience itself is. And so poetry is not sophisticated. It is the most primal art. It goes back to a time when people had no other tools but their bodies. I mean, they didn't, they didn't even have a language to write in, but they moved their bodies, they chanted, and they said, let's stop ordinary talk right now and create a special kind of language which says special sorts of things. And it's really beautiful. We, I've mentioned on here that, that when people ask me whether they should have children, one of the reasons I give is that it's, it's a central part of the human experience. And the answer that one listener gave me is that, yeah, well, so is farming. And uh, you don't think everybody should be a farmer. But I think it's fundamentally different. Um, it's part of that continuity. It's something that we're all children of some parent. And uh, it's a chance to experience that for what it's worth. Well, I would go say, maybe we don't have to be farmers, but anybody who goes through their whole life and doesn't try to grow something from the earth and see what happens or doesn't happen has you know, really missed a central experience. I mean, it's interesting to me. People, they want to go to Antarctica. They want to go to Iceland, but they don't want to have kids. And the, the argument that they say, well, I, you know, I want to experience this. I want to experience this. And so you're sort of saying like, okay, you know, it's sort of like saying I want to go to a great restaurant, but let's just talk about the parsley you know, that's on the edge of the plate you know, versus the, you know, the central meal. But anyway, it's, I'm tribal, and, you know, and I believe that, you, that, that there's a basic human wisdom of embracing the life force itself. And, you know, there's a, a wonderful, uh, I, I don't know if you know this, my wife and I lost our first son. Our first son died at four months of sudden infant death syndrome. And it was terrible. I mean, we'd waited a long time to have kids and we were so, you know, both of us were astonished at how happy we were when this kid came. Because we kept thinking, well, it's going to be, we want to have kids, but it's going to be a hassle. But suddenly, we were the happiest we had ever been, maybe, you know, except for maybe our honeymoon. And then we lost the child, and we went through this whole journey of grief. Um, you know, and that is reflected indirectly in a lot of my poems. I, mean, I don't tend to be a tremendously autobiographical poet. But a friend of mine gave me the advice, if and he's quoting Seneca, if you resist your destiny, it drags you behind it. Mm. 
But if you follow your destiny, it guides you. And it was really true. So I just let grief guide me, but it led me to a, a larger sense of life, which is to say that you embrace the, the energies of your life. You embrace the things that are offered to you in your life, and you make the existential leap. You know, you can either be a Danish philosopher and just go, you know, or, you know, uh, and, and, I, and I know people like this, you know, they, they can't figure out whether to order green or black tea because it's just it's such a tremendous choice, or you can simply be intuitive. Well, I knew you lost a child because you wrote about it in, in, in a beautiful poem, uh, which reminded me of a poem I mentioned on the air, I think, before James Russell Lowell's The First Snowfall, which is also about a similar experience. And that was a poem that my father used to recite all the time to me when we'd go walking in the snow. He'd read the first few lines. He never read the rest of it to me. Uh, as an adult, I came happened to stumble on the poem at some point. It's a heartbreaking poem. It's a beautiful evocation of, of a snowfall, but it's about a lot more than that. And I'm, I'm just curious if you, if you know the poem and if, it, if yes. it, it does it speak to you. Well, it is. I mean, I think when, when you lose a child, um, you need some place to put your thoughts. You need resonance. You need conversations. And so the whole literature of grief um, begins to console you. I mean, Longfellow, you know, uh, you know, lost a daughter and then lost his wife, you know. And so, he, you know, once again, he you know, he wrote these poems. It was a much more common experience in the 19th century. I mean, th- throughout history, people lost children. And so, you know, there was a kind of, uh, and I wrote a, p- a poem. It's about actually decorating a Christmas tree uh, with these crappy old ornaments they were my mother's, and I don't have the heart to throw them out, but they're kind of embarrassingly awful. And I'm doing it, and so, and it's you know in a sense a way of honoring this kind of very you know a, you know brilliant difficult woman who raised me. And and I'm, and my last line is there is no holiday without ghosts. Mm-hmm. And I think that's too is as you get older and you lose people, every joy you have is qualified by your losses. But in a, in a weird way, that amplifies your joy and makes your memory bearable. Yeah, it's a, it's, that's a deep insight about it, it. I think it's part of the reason that getting older has an impact on us besides just the fact that we struggle to sometimes play tennis or get up the stairs. Um, there's a richness to older age that I've experienced that um, it, it, part of it comes from – you hope it comes from wisdom. But a lot of it comes, I think, from an appreciation of life that is comes from death and the, the experience of death of loved ones, friends. And um, it's bittersweet. It's not just yeah, bitter. You know, the, it's bittersweet. You know, the, the, the book we were, you know, were, uh, that I just published studying with Miss Bishop is not a book I could have written as a young man. Yeah. Um, and in fact, there's parts of it that I wrote years ago, but, you know, they – they were, you know, dare I say it? They were wonderfully written, of course. But but they were the the immediate impressions of things versus the reflection. And so, you know, what I learned in you know in taking you know I wanted to do this book, and I literally I thought it would be very easy to assemble. But then I said, you know, and pardon me for saying this. My wife says this is the most embarrassing thing I could say. I wanted to write something that was perfect. Yeah. You know, I wanted to write a book that was as good 
as I could possibly write it. And I wanted it to be short. I wanted it to be something you could sort of just enter into, you know, without a huge investment. And so I began writing the damn thing and I went through, I mean, I can't tell you how many drafts, a hundred drafts of some pages. But what I wanted to do is to have the story is then, but I'm now, mm-hmm. you know, and rather than it being like this, it's like that. And that I realized was the, was the pleasure of the book to be able to look back on yourself, on these teachers, uh, to describe what happened, but then now years later to be able to, in a sense, present the resonances of that. And I think that, and I think that that is what people are responding to in the book. I've had the weirdest reaction. You know, I published a lot of books. I mean, this is not, um, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm 70 years old. I'm a, you know, I'm an old timer. Uh, but I've never had this. I get the same thing again and again. People say the book came and I read it in one evening. I've read it. I couldn't put it down. Right? Uh, you know, Cynthia Ozick, if you, you know the, you know the great Jewish intellectual. I love, you know, she, I love Cynthia. She said, you know, I, I, you know, I got this and I read it all night. Uh-huh. You know, and 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 so I and I think that that people do because they sort of say, yeah, they, they can enter into this, and it speaks very deeply to your own experience because, you know, I told I was you know I was the chairman of the NEA, so I spent an unholy That's the National Endowment of the Arts. Yeah, the National Endowment. I spent an unholy amount of time talking to members of Congress. You know, <laughs> I mean, I was in you know in uh, the halls of Congress almost every day, and we're talking about you know these programs. And I and I, I went to this one senator and I said, "Look, I, I said I can t- guarantee you that the reason you're here, and he's, you know, I said because there was a teacher in high school, <laughs> and he started, and I saw tears forming in his eyes, people." who are successful in life. You know, they know it's their own talents and everything else, but they also know that there were people who awakened to those talents, refined them, gave them the little push, gave them the advice. Because we all know lots of people with talent who've not made much of their life. They never found, in a sense, the ways of focusing their talent and everything else, and they just thrash around. You know, a couple days ago, a an old friend of mine died, you know, you know, he, you know, he died at 80 and one of the most talented guys I ever met, but you know, he ended up in rural Washington, more or less in poverty, um, you know, playing jazz in a, in a nightclub. And he never took, found a way of his literary talents, his administrative talents, his musical talents, you know, and, and making them in a sense, um, vehicles for his own success and happiness. Yeah, well, it a great teacher lights a spark, um, right? Um, um, let's see if I can get it uh, correct. The quote from uh, Plutarch: "The mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be kindled." And a great teacher sparks that fire, gets it going. Um, let's turn to the book. Uh, you, you talk about studying Homer with uh, Robert Fitzgerald, who at the time I think had the the most renowned translation of the Iliad and the Odyssey that, that were out at the time. Since been others, um, Richard Lattimore, Robert Fagels. But uh, that must have been quite an experience. It obviously was. You write about it beautifully. I'm curious how it changed you uh, and affected your own poetry, if, if at all, in your mind. Well, yeah, you and I probably have something in common. And I'm, I'm, I don't know your background, but we're both scholarship guys. 
you know, we're both people that, you know, that I'm the first person in my family ever to go to college. Um, you know, and you know, you had to be smarter than everybody else to get to the next level. You know, I had, you know, I had to get into Stanford, then I had to get into Harvard grad school, then I had to get into Stanford business school. You know, and then, you know, and then when you, you know, get to business, you've got to make it up, you know, up the ladder. So we're used to sort of pushing ourselves and working hard. In my, I wanted to be by when I was by the time I was 19. God help me, I wanted to be a poet. I had no idea. <laughs> what it meant to be a poet. You know, I just knew that this is the stuff I wanted to hang around with. You know, this was the part of me that I wanted to cultivate. And, and so I said, well, you know, what do poets do? They're professors. You know, I didn't, I'd never met a poet, you know, I've hardly met a poet, but every poet I met was a professor. So I went to Harvard Graduate School in Literature and I did what scholarship kids did which is be the best kid in every class you're in. Sure. You know, and if the teacher, you know, wants you to do this, you do this. But what my teachers wanted me to do, and I had great teachers. I mean, I don't you know, I know you're at Stanford. I don't know if you met Walter Sokell, Herbert Lindenberger, Diane Middlebrook. I mean, these were great, great teachers at Stanford. And, but they all were about analysis. They were about, in a sense, taking a, holistic phenomenon, an experiential phenomenon called poetry or the novel, and turning it into elegant conceptual arguments. And I was so good at that. You know, it's, you know, it's like, it was like being in a law school in some ways. And suddenly, it, with Robert Fitzgerald, there was this man of charm. You know, he could have charmed the birds out of the trees. And he was older, and he had, for many years, lived in Italy you know, translating Homer, he knew Ezra Pound and everybody else. He'd written about Culture for Time magazine, you know, so if they wanted somebody to talk to T.S. Eliot or Robert Frost, it was Robert Fitzgerald. And now he was teaching this class as the Boylston Professor of Rhetoric at Harvard, which is, I think, a position that was created for John Quincy Adams, you know, in the 19th century. And in fact, one of the privileges of being the Boylston Professor was that you could graze a cow on the Harvard Yard. Wow. You know, Robert, alas, never exercised this this right. I was Go disappointed, <laughs> uh, and uh, that's how old the position is. And um, and he was doing. Um, you know, I took two classes from him. They were both highly intellectual subjects. One was the classical epic, Homer, Virgil, Dante, and the other was the uh, history of versification. You know, which is the technique by which poetry is written. It, and he started from the Greeks and went up to the moderns. But there was this sense when he, when uh, Fitzgerald talked about these things that he understood the intellectual, conceptual, linguistic things of these deeply, but they'd been entirely translated into something that uh, had been integrated into his personality and into his imagination as great. Uh, vehicles of human meaning and so that you know and his whole thing was that we had to and and we were tested on this know every character who was in the odyssey the first six books of the aeneid and in the inferno and i'm talking about near maybe seven eight hundred characters is we had to know that you know you know sometimes they just differed by a single vowel and his point was that a great writer makes every detail significant so if they put a name, they put a description in, it's because it's part of a, both an immediate feeling and a larger fabric. And 
you start to do that, so you you literally have to read and reread the poem, and and suddenly a kind of wall breaks down inside of you, and in, you fully enter into the imaginative world. Um, the same thing with the, with the language. You would just take a line, El mezzo del camin di nostra vita, mi ritrovai per una selva oscura che la verita via era smarita. That's the beginning of the divine comedy. And start to just, you know, listen to the music, the meaning, the particular words. And it was liberating to me because he didn't, he wasn't fundamentally asking me to analyze them. He was asking me almost like an empirical scientist to study them so well that the structures themselves became internalized in me, not as things that I looked at from the outside, but but ways I could generate meanings. And that's what poets do because you, you assimilate the tradition, and out of that assimilation, you produce the ability to speak within that tradition, to expand the tradition, to communicate it. And so I felt in the, those two classes, suddenly I realized I don't belong at the university because the, you know, the teachers I have that are speaking most deeply to me are people who spent most of their lives outside the university as creative artists. And so I, had to, so I decided to quit. And you know, and then I ended up in business school because I figured if I was going to be, I was going to be write write poetry while having a job. Let me make it an interesting job. So I became the first person in human history to go to Stanford Business School specifically to be a poet. <laughs> well, we're going to come back and talk about that. I want to ask you though first about Homer while we're on Mr. Fitzgerald. I think some people's – I'm a big fan of uh, of the Odyssey. I have not read the Iliad. I'm ashamed to say, but I'm a big fan of the Odyssey. I love, love, love many, many, many passages in it. But I think a lot of people would today – I assume many of our listeners have not opened either the Iliad or the Odyssey and would say, well, you know, what do I need to read, read that for? It's it's old. Uh, it's a bunch of people that you know I can't relate to. What's Really, what's the point? Like, wouldn't it be better off reading something more modern? Of course not. <laughs> Why? I, mean, I can be absolute in that. Um, let me start with a historical reason and then come to a modern reason. Greek civilization, which we honor as, in a sense, you know, one of the generative energies of Western civilization, Greek civilization was based on Homer. That was their foundational text. The second, you know, Daryl was philosophy and some of the of the tragedians and stuff like this. But Homer was the central text. Now that seems extraordinarily odd to a modern person, but what they believed was once again, I think, that embodied truths, embodied wisdom, embodied in narrative, embodied in poetry, spoke more deeply immediately and memorably to people. And so let's just take the Odyssey, you know, which has to be one of the greatest stories ever told, simply on a narrative level. It's about (laughs) a great man who has achieved a great victory, which is to say that he was the person who engineers the Greek triumph over Troy, who then wants to get back to be with his wife, and his son, his son whom he left in infancy. So that's one half of the story. The other half is, is about the son, 
you know, Telemachus or Telemachus, depending on how you're scanning it. And Telemachus has never know, had his father. He knows his father's great hero. He knows his father is the king of Ithaca. Now, being the king of Ithaca is like being the king of a savage island, you know, but, you know, but it's still a king. And his own mother and he are in danger because these people are, you know, these suitors are coming in. They all want to marry Penelope. They say, your husband's dead. Marry me so I can become the king. And they, and they are beginning to recognize that they've got to kill Telemachus. Uh, and so you've got these two stories. It's a, a son looking for a father, a father looking for his family to resume his life after a war. And it's about the thousands of things which are their obstacles, some of them from the gods, some of them from humans, and how, through courage, through love, through ingenuity, they outwit you know, a, lar- you know, a huge army of opponents you know, and come together again. And so it is exciting, it's memorable, it's meaningful. Now, think of our society. You know, if you said American society, if you said, what's the 10 top problems? Certainly one of them is sons without a father. Another one is fathers who have abandoned their families. Another one is you know, people returning from a war and having to integrate into society. Those are all there. And I think that's what the Greeks understood, is that there's very few things that you're going to experience in life, including seduction, murder, uh, you know, natural disaster, all these things that are in the Odyssey, very few things that you'll experience in life that are not there. And part of the purpose of literature for the young, you know, for young people is to give them an imaginative experience of something they might actually experience later in their lives. For adults, it's to reflect on the actual experiences that you have. No one with a wife and children can read the Odyssey without enormous you know, emotion um, and a kind of, of imaginative uh, expansion of your memory and and your emotional uh, capacity, you know. But it's so it's a wonderful story. Now, my worry is that a lot of people nowadays read what I would think of as disposable books. They're books which are written so you can scan them quickly once, you know, glean two or three ideas, and then you can throw them away. Uh, but literature operates differently. It sort of says, look. I want you, for a few moments, to give me the whole of your attention. I want you to open up, not just your mind, but your emotions. See, that's why poetry has a, has a melody. Tell me not in mournful numbers, life is but an empty dream. Dead indeed the soul that slumbers, and things are not what they seem. Life is real, life is, you know. And see, what's happening? You hear a rhythm. The rhythm is slightly hypnotic, and the power of poetic rhythms is to relax your conscious mind so that you can bring your emotions, your intuition, your memory, your imagination closer to the surface, that you can become slightly vulnerable. And that allows certain things to happen in that transaction that don't happen in ordinary life, that don't happen in in a book that's designed to be scanned. A book that's designed to be scanned says, you know, look, the only thing, you know, I'm going to talk entirely to your intellect and, you know, the rest of you can do whatever you want to do. But that's not deep learning. That's not transformative in any way. And so what a poet is trying to do is to create that 
magical spell that momentarily allows you to open up your complete humanity and have a transaction that at least has the possibility of being transformative. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I happened to be reading um, Homer last night uh, in the Fagel's translation. Sorry, Mr. Fitzgerald, but um, it's so cinematic. It is so riveting. It is so heartbreaking. Just, it's just, as you say, it's a great story, but it's more than a great story. It, it actually, um, to use a little Yiddish, uh, it gets in your kishkis. It gets into your innards, <laughs> yeah. and um, it's 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 quite quite amazing. I, let's talk for a minute about memorizing poetry. Mm-hmm. You talk in your in your book about Elizabeth Bishop, the poet, teaching a class at Harvard, and uh, worried that you won't get much out of it. At least you'll get something by having to memorize. Uh, I think you said it was a ten or fifteen lines a week of poetry, and um, it's interesting. I was I've mentioned Miss Kinnean on this program before. My eighth grade teacher, who I was one of those teachers that sparked my uh, adulthood and in, in, in education in all kinds of ways, and she actually made us read uh, and and memorize the poem Ulysses, which is funny because we're talking about the Odyssey by Tennyson. Little prophets and idle king. By this still hearth among these barren crags, matched with an aged wife, I meet and dole an equal laws into a savage race that hoards and sleeps and feeds and knows not me. It's close. I may have missed a word there, but yeah, no. but it's iambic pentameter. It says that rhythm that, that you're talking about. It's profound. It it has lessons for life that are amazing. And I cherish that I know a chunk of that by heart. I also know the last eight or so lines by heart. I wish I knew the whole thing. I, I did then, but I don't anymore. Talk about the importance or value of memorizing poetry. You mentioned your uh, your um, ancestors who, who knew it by heart. Uh, what's the value well, of that? And did you do you still remember some things that Elizabeth Bishop had you memorize? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, if you look at the... Now, I know we're smarter than... A, Everybody who ever existed, and that's why we're so happy and peaceful yeah. and everything's going so well. Yeah. Um, the, but if you look at the entire history of humanity, a fundamental part of education from China, you know, to, to England, you know, to, uh, you know, basically uh, illiterate people was to memorize poetry. If you go to, to here's a, here's a uh, quiz for your listeners. What goddess is the mother of the muses? What goddess had nine daughters who created the arts? Nemnosine, the goddess of memory. So memory is the mother of poetry. And so and myths portray profound you know, uh, truths. They embody profound truths. And what that's saying is that the arts... You know, think of this. If you had go to the ballet and somebody, a dancer comes out there and goes, one, two, three, oh, two, three, two, you know, and is moving by, you go, yeah, yeah, what's going on? It has to be in their For muscle those, memory. Those people who aren't listening at home, uh, Dana was was showing a uh, miming a ballet dancer consulting a, a document while she was was dancing. Yeah, yeah you want to see the dance. It has to all be in the muscle memory. You know, when a, a you know a you know, a soloist plays the violin. They're doing it without music because what they've done is they've taken the form of a masterpiece and they've embodied it. And that was always the, you know, the notion of poetry. When Tennyson, 
you know, would be, uh, you know, would be asked about a poem. He says, oh, if that one's in there, he would just recite it. He knew that Mandelstam, you know, the Soviet poet, you know, who died in transit to a prison camp, you know, towards the end of his life, never wrote any of his poems down because, you know, the Stalin would, you know, would, the secret police would find them. But his entire thing was in their memory. Pasternak, in his old age, was giving a reading in Moscow, and he he's reciting a poem, and he missed a line. And the audience shouted it to him <laughs> because everyone knows, you know, same thing. I was, I was in Russia when I was chairman of the NEA, National Endowment for the Arts, and, the, and the, the, my translator said, you are the perfect person to come to Russia because we love two things in Russia, most of all. Officials and the poets, and you are both. <laughs> and it was and it was bizarre because whenever I sat down with a public official, they would recite a poem to me. They go, "Here is Pushkin. Here is Akhmatova. Uh, give me give me one of your poems. Give me one of your great poets." And I went to this one high school, this gymnasium, and there was hundreds of kids there. And this woman came, and she was, you know, one of these things that was right out of a Soviet poster. This old lady, she goes, "You will recite American classics to us." <laughs> and but I, you know I had her because I knew them all you know not all but I mean I knew you know I said you had who some. do you want <laughs> she goes I want Longfellow and I said here's some Longfellow she goes now give me Frost you know and I you know and luckily I, she never called when I didn't know but that's what they did then the students came and recited them to me in Russian and sometimes in English these you know little girls would come up and say here is a poem by Walt Whitman, and then she would recite it. You know, and that's what the re- that's what the traditional relationship of poetry is, because what they believe is the importance to take children and give them the opportunity to embody the greatest language available, but also the language as a vehicles of the greatest ideas, the greatest sentiments, the greatest experiences, and that they would prepare people. For life. That's why Abraham Lincoln didn't have to go to college, you know, or, or law school. He read Shakespeare. He read poetry. He, in a sense, had the capacity uh, to experience and articulate. Because you know, you can't articulate something that you haven't experienced. You can't articulate something you haven't noticed. So, w- one of the purposes of poetry, and this has been forgotten, I think, in our society, is to awaken you to the full potential of your humanity. Uh, because you know, most of us are operating, you know, at two thirds speed on a good day, you know, one third speed on a bad day, and this is the sense to give you that sort of charge. You said, you know, as you said, Plutarch, it ignites you, uh, and in, and so I think that that's why we need to integrate it in. But you don't integrate it in by having people write papers about it. It's by memorizing and reciting. The most important thing I did at the NEA, and actually last night I was doing this thing, and people you know, on the Zoom were asking me about this because they had, they had themselves participated in it, was to create a national poetry recitation contest for high school students mm. in which they memorize and recite poems in competition at the school level, the town level, Sweet. the county level, the state level, and then at a national level. When we uh, announced the program, 49 out of the you know, 53 states, I think I'm talking about the federal government because you have Virgin Islands and, other, you know, the District of Columbia, but 49 of the 50 states didn't want to do it. They said, kids don't like poetry, um, doing arts and competition was degrading, and memorization was repressive. And they also said because of those three things, it would discriminate against uh, immigrants and people of color. Um, 
through charm and threats, <laughs> uh, we got them to try it for one year. I said, if it fails, you can use the money for anything you want. And, well, of course, it was immense, immensely popular. Okay. And, and because kids liked poetry, uh, when you start doing something at competition, it gets actually more interesting. Uh, and uh, memorization allowed people, you know, and I told him, I said, the teacher says, you'll be surprised. The kid who wins your competition is not going to be your A student. It's going to be the class clown. It's going to be this sullen jock in the back <laughs> who never says a word. And it's going to be your theater queens. And, you know, and, okay, and then thirdly, uh, about 80% of our winners have been uh, first-generation Americans yeah. or people of color. And because they come there and they, they understand the importance of mastering the language, of of, in a sense, creating a public persona that can just charm people, you know, that can move people. And so now it's the signature program of the state arts organizations, and millions of kids have participated in this. Not coincidentally, I believe, now this is a statistical fact, poetry is the fastest growing art in the United States. Most of the arts are declining in participation. Poetry is growing rapidly among the 18 to 25-year-olds, which is to say the generation that began this program, the audience for poetry has doubled in the last 10 years. And so, you know, most of your listeners are saying, eh, poetry, who cares about poetry? But poetry is has re-entered the culture right now because we've made it performative, We've made it democratic, we've made it accessible, and we've separated it from critical analysis. And we've, in a sense, the university took poetry away from the people. We've given it back. Well, this week was the uh, inauguration of, of Joe Biden, and Amanda Gorman recited her poem, The Hill We Climb. It was interesting. I was I was not paying any attention to the inauguration. I'm not a like you, I'm not a big fan of Washington. It's not my thing. Uh, try to stay away from as much as possible, even though uh, you don't know me, Dana. You think I'm at Stanford. I'm only out there in the summer and not yeah. this summer because of COVID. I actually live outside of Washington, but I, I try to stay away from it. But uh, I saw on Twitter, in my Twitter feed, a lot of people complaining. Oh, horrible poem. It's awful. So I thought, well, that's too bad. You know, such is life. Then my wife said, did you see that poem? And I said, no, nah, I heard it was horrible. And so I watched it, and it's to say it's extraordinary. I mean, it's it per, certainly was performative. It was it was an incredible delivery. It, my joke, I joked on Twitter. I said Biden should have just recited the poem, and and that would be it. He didn't need. She said it all, and then people were up. Yeah. I don't think he would have recited it as well. You think? No, he no, wouldn't have. It was so. it was she, an she, extraordinary well, I mean, performance. There's a genre called the occasional poem. It's a poem that doesn't have to, you know, to work a hundred years later. It has to work at the occasion, and it, it was an occasional poem. It was she, Amanda Gorman gave the audience exactly what they needed at that moment, yeah. which was a kind of of rhythm of optimism and sort of an upbeat emotional experience. You know, whether it's a good poem or not doesn't matter as much as did it work in the moment yeah, and, it worked. and the national <laughs> response is so overwhelming it's obvious yeah. that it worked in the moment and that's going to have an impact i think on poetry's that one event actually can be yeah. uh you know can spark a lot before yeah, we the, leave most of the inaugural poems have been have been missile uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> the, you know, Robert Frost stole the inauguration from JFK, and that's the last time we had an experience like yeah, this. Yeah. No, I thought of the where same she thing. stole the inauguration from from Biden. Yeah, it's interesting given what we've been saying that there is a poem that's recited. It, it's a it's a a throwback. Um, it's a retro gesture. Before we leave Elizabeth Bishop, um, I'm going to mention we recently had uh, Lamorna Ash on the program talking about her book Dark Salt Clear, which is a quote from Elizabeth Bishop's poem at the fish houses, yeah. a poem I love, don't understand, but I still love it. Um, I understand, you know, a few of the lines, a few of the images, but I find it a very difficult poem. Do you have a, I'm just curious, do you have a favorite Elizabeth Bishop poem? Well, let me just say something. The purpose of poetry is not necessarily to understand it, but to experience it. I mean, I could bring you to, to things in life that you wouldn't really understand. I mean, you said something would happen, and it would be this, that, and the other, and you you puzzle through it, but the, the experience itself would still be very powerful. See two people fighting on the street. Well, you may not know why they're fighting, but you experience you know the violence the, of their emotions, of their of their physicality, and so you know what a, a poem does is bring you uh, to an experience. I think um, the there's two or three poems of hers I really like uh, most of all, but there's a, towards the end of her life she wrote. Um, a, a, a villanelle right. called One Art. My the art favorite. of losing yeah. is it hard to master is the way that it begins. So many things are filled with the intent to be lost that losing them is no disaster. Um, and the you know, and it's a poem that she sort of pulled the whole grief. You know, you you would never have known by spe- you know you know talking to Elizabeth or having tea with Elizabeth. The, the losses, the strange losses that had been in her life from the very beginning, starting with her father, her mother, you know, her lovers, you know, the, you know things. And she, and she was a person of, tre- of tremendous loneliness, you know, and she had a little bit of family money early in her life that sheltered her from it. But eventually that evaporated away. And, and then when her lover, Guadalajara, uh, uh, Suarez, uh, killed herself, uh, she lost even – the pro- you know this property that she had in Brazil, she couldn't go back to Brazil, which was the country she was living in, and then she was basically, I mean, I say this, reduced to teaching creative writing, <laughs> um, you know, which is not something she wanted to do, and so she was, you know, was, I think at University of Washington, and then she got a, a, this a job at Harvard, where she was not treated with a great deal of respect. In in retrospect, Harvard says, well, you know, we had Elizabeth Bishop, whom we know, they treated her, you know, like sort of like an adjunct faculty member. And she needed the job. She was protected by Robert Fitzgerald and Robert Lowell. But my advisor said, you don't want to take a pick of class from her. She's not a serious person. Uh, you know, and there was only uh, five people mm. in my course with her. Mm. Now, in retrospect, you know, people say, oh, how can that be? But the reason it was is that she was not well regarded at Harvard except by the poets. And so, you know, she was, you know, and I think she took all those losses and she put it into that poem. Well, this is, crazily, this is the third recent Econ Talk episode with an Elizabeth Bishop mention. Uh, I was talking, we were talking with Scott Newstock. That episode hasn't come out yet. It'll be out uh, uh, in, a, in a few days. He mentioned that that poem, One Art, which is magnificent, uh, went through 17 different variations that that he Scott and I talked about it because it's an economic concept I love called emergent order, this idea that things happen not under anyone's control often. 
Uh, I'm interested in it in writ large as a price system or as uh, other phenomena. But when we think about it at that micro level of uh, a poem takes on a life of its own. Uh, it's not under the control of the poet after a while in a certain sense. Obviously, it is still, but but it 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 becomes animated. It it has a vitality to it that 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 stuns the the poet um and at times or the writer and um i'm curious if in your work just a stylistic question do you go through zillion drafts or do you tend to craft each line to your contentment and move on um what's your experience a, a, a gazillion and one drafts uh-huh. um you're at one of the few non-poets you know who actually understands the process. I mean, you know, I mean, I was surprised to hear you to hear you. Um, I guess express it in terms of an economic concept. But um, when I read a poem, I immediately know whether it was willed into existence or if it really happened. And I was talking to Richard Wilbur, who mm. died a few years ago in his nineties, and he, I. Th- I thought of him as really the greatest living American poet towards the end of his life. I mean, he's sort of the, the inherited or frost, you know, he won the Pulitzer Prize twice, but he was just a, a poet of perfection. And I, I, you know, I was talking to him once. I said, you know, Dick, I said, you know, I, when I, these poems come, I have this weird relationship. So I start to write them and I don't know the shape they want to take. And so I just keep writing and I'm trying to listen for the language to tell me, whether it should be metered, whether it should be free verse, whether it needs to be rhymed, whether it needs... And I said, is that with you? He says, yes, this is exactly it. You listen to the poem, and the poem tells you the shape it wants to take. And so what I look on as writing a poem is to be in a, a partnership, a collaboration with language itself, except language has 51% share, and you only have 49 uh, So the language can always outvote you. And what you do is you you follow it around. So a lot of times I'll get a poem and it's it it really works, but then it just stops. And I know it's not done, and I just got to wait. Sometimes I'll wait years for the rest of it to come. You know, and you know, and it's it is a thing called inspiration. And inspiration is, I think, you know, uh, Elizabeth Bishop said a poem is many things coming together at the same time. And I think that's exactly what happens. You have an idea, and then suddenly an exact word comes in, and then another memory comes in that pours an emotion, and the three things, it has a catalytic effect on this. And you start to have something happen. When I am inspired, honestly, I feel it physically. I have a, a burning here and a burning in my temples. And it makes me realize that the thought that I had is not a thought, but it's, it's the muse speaking to me. And I've got to get to a piece of paper. And a lot of times I, I'm not around any place I can write down. And then what happens is if I'm lucky, I write in a trance for maybe half an hour. And then I have a mess, a complete mess. Um, and then I have to find the shape it wants to take. Every now and then, the poem comes to you more or less whole. Um, you know, I was... Uh, I'll recite a poem, um, and just this is a poem that the first three, you know, three stanzas came, and then, you know, almost, you know, as a whole, 
And the then some, and I, it wasn't over. I didn't know what to do. Then suddenly, about a week later, the last stanza came. Um, it's a very LA poem. It's about beautiful people and the power that beauty gives someone, but also the dangers of that because if you're beautiful and then suddenly your beauty vanishes, which happens in life, that suddenly you're without the the skills, the energies that ordinary ugly people have, you know? And so, and it was written, there's a reason it was written because it was, I heard about the death of this extraordinarily beautiful woman I had known when she was young who had gone through life and everybody wanted to, you know, let me open the door for you. Let me buy you this meal like this. And then, you know, things started to go bad, but I don't, I don't mention her in, in the, the, um, the poem. It's called pity the beautiful. Pity the beautiful, the dolls and the dishes, the babes with big daddies, granting their wishes. Pity the pretty boys, the hunks and Apollos, the golden lads whom success always follows, the hotties, the knockouts, the tens out of ten, the drop-dead gorgeous, the great leading men. Pity the faded, the paunchy, the blousy, the paunchy Adonis whose luck's gone lousy. Pity the gods, no longer divine. Pity the night, the stars lose their shine. You know, so and it, that came. I, I missed one. I, I got. I misspoke one word there, but you know, it was. You get the idea. It's beautiful. Um, but you know, it's. I'm trying to create a spell, um, and it just in this in this time it all sort of came out, and it, I realized it was because, for, you know, I've been thinking about the, the, the sadness of her death. I've been thinking about, you know, the the fact that every gift that you're given in life has a danger in it, um, and same way every every suffering you're given in life has a possibility in it, you know, and and I just thought I would do this, and I wanted to do it in slang. That's I don't nice. usually use a lot of slang yeah, in my nice. poem, but there's, you know, it's like for, you know, I wrote a poem called Money that's entirely slang because yeah. we have, you know, slang are the metaphors that, you know, the street poets, as it were, you know, the everyday poets creates about something, you know, and so, you know, the, uh, and, you know, but it came all at once. Usually my poems are much more, you know, it takes me a lot longer to write them. Can I do one more poem? Yeah, one sec though. I want to. Can I say one thing about yeah. about faded beauty? I want you to do more than one poem, but we'll. So there's plenty of time. Um, there's the fading beauty reminds me of a uh, story I love of uh, Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe when she comes back from a tour with the USO, entertaining troops. I, I think maybe in the Korean War, World War II. I think it was the Korean War, and uh, she says to him, "It's probably an apocryphal story, but it's so good." She says. Joe, you've you've never heard such cheers, and he said, "Oh yes, I have." And it's the 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 yes, I have is is got a poignance to it because those cheers are over for him. Yeah, uh, they never faded for Marilyn because she died young and beautiful, which um, is another story, another poignant aspect of life. Well, yeah, that's why this is an LA poem. LA is full yeah. of people like this. You know, I mean, some were successful, some were never successful, but they, you know, they they possessed this gift from the gods. Um, and then there comes a point, you know, when the gods, you know, when they're no longer divine. Um, Read another but, poem. Go ahead. Okay, well, this is, I'll just, I'll just, I think this is, you know, I think two may be sufficient for your audience. But the, 
there's not a lot of poems, surprisingly, about a happy marriage. Yeah. You know, I guess it's, you know, it's because uh, it's easier to write about an unhappy one. And if you have a happy marriage and you write about it too much, it may turn unhappy <laughs> because your family doesn't want you to, to write about them generally. Uh, and I was, uh, you know, reading how, you know, in California, there are a few Indian tribes and there's only one or two speakers left. You know, and when that person dies, the language dies, the songs die, the dances die, you know, and, and it vanishes. You know, this, you know, whatever the particular glory of those people were, you know, becomes a footnote. And it struck me as that this is what a, what a marriage is like, what marital love is like. You know, that you uh, are with somebody, and if you have a happy marriage or, you know, a, a deep long-term love, I mean, I guess you don't have to be married, the two of you create a private language. And you, uh, you'll never have a more intimate form of communication with any other people. Now, your kids kind of half understand it, but you can even outwit your kids because they can't enter fully into the kind of communication you have with your spouse. But it's a very fragile thing because if you lose one person, you know, you lose that. And, and you know, it's of gestures, words, and everything else. And so I wrote, I ended up my book, you know, I have a book called 99 Poems. The last poem in it, I wanted it to be, to be towards to my wife. Who, um, and this is what I wrote. It's called Marriage of Many Years. Most of what happens, happens beyond words. The lexicon of lip and fingertip defies translation into common speech. I recognize the musk of your dark hair. It always thrills me, though I can't explain it. My finger on your thigh does not touch skin. It touches your skin, warming to my touch. You are a language I have learned by heart. This intimate Patois will vanish with us. It's only native speakers. Does it matter? Our tribal chants, our dances round the fire performed the sorcery we most desired. They bound us in a spell time could not break. Let the young vaunt their ecstasy. We keep our tribe of two in solemn secrecy. What must be lost was never lost on us. So I absolutely love that poem, and I'm writing a book about decision-making, and one of the things I'm writing about is the decision to get married and who to marry, and I actually quote line from that poem, which I learned in preparing for this interview. Oh. I, I wrote it last night. Uh, what line? <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to maybe embarrass you. I, I, you changed one word. I, 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 I think I, I, may, I may have misquoted. I assume, I assume you read it by heart just now. Yeah, I just recited it. Yeah, what, but what, you, what, you what, said you, – the word you changed is quite beautiful. You, you said solemn secrecy. But I know from having oh, read it last night, secrets. Yeah, it's exactly. sovereign. That was, you know, what I'm remembering. This is the thing I'm remembering an earlier draft. Yeah, 
Isn't that yeah, cool? So, that's, yeah. that's spectacular. Thank you, because, thank you for ca- catching me. But on that's that. the only. Um, this is the only public version of that draft. <laughs> or actually, your other draft probably had other differences, but this yeah, version no, we, we is unique. We keep our tribe of two in sovereign secrecy. What must be lost was never lost in us. No, was, yeah. And this is the problem about, about these things: is that you do this and you remember. You know, and it happens all the time. I'm remembering. The earlier draft, beautiful. because sovereign secrecy is better than solemn secrecy. But solemn secrecy is, is beautiful, too. Uh, no, sovereign is better, though, because it's a little kingdom, you yeah, know, a little right. tribe. Yeah, no, I know. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that's, glad, you know. it's a beautiful poem, but it illustrates what, what actually what, – the reason I quote it is I'm, I'm writing in the book about this challenge of the unmarried, the vaunted young with their vaunted ecstasy to imagine yeah. the – different kind of joy that comes from a long, deep love and relationship. And a poem is almost the only way to get a glimpse of it. If I, try, if I as a non-poet, tried to describe what's special about my relationship with my wife, you know, to say, oh, well, we really know each other well. We finish each other's sentences. It doesn't say it the way you did, right? It doesn't speak to the heart in a way that a poem can. What is, you know, I, mean, I like the, the, the deeper metaphor of the poem, which is that of a tribe, yeah. you know, of a tribe that's doomed in some ways because we're mortal. But, you know, that being in that tribe, being, you know, that tribe of two, um, you know, which it amplifies all of your joys. You know, I mean, you know, sort of like if you're, if you're really in love with somebody, anything that happens is twice as good or, twi- or half as bad. Yeah. You know, and it really, you know, it really brings, I mean, for me, it's, you know, it, emotionally it, it improves life enormously. But it's kind of a secret because yeah. you, you can't imagine it when you look at when you look at it from the outside. And this is the what I try to explain in the book. When you when you see married couples before you're married, you get no glimpse of their inner life except to the extent that it's reflected in their emotional demeanor, their face. But their true inner life, which is what you yeah. said earlier about what poetry does, their and books, their true inner life is 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 veiled from you. And poetry and, and fiction, and sometimes nonfiction, but ma- mainly poetry and fiction allow you to glimpse that, and it allows once you've experienced it to have to feel its resonance in a way you, you might not be able to to put into words and enriches it and so on. Yeah, well, that's what, you know, that's what I wanted to do in this poem. I wanted to write a poem in praise of marriage. Yeah, you know, and it's a poem in praise of marriage. You know that acknowledges you know mortality and acknowledges the loss, but you know that you know. What a gift it is, you know. I mean, you see this when people lose, you know, their, you know, their spouse after long marriages. You know that who do, you know, who do they talk to? Yeah. You know, they can talk to all their friends, but you know, there's, you know, the, in a sense, their their partner, their, you know, it's like a, a, a duet, you know, in music. You know, the you know, the person they've been performing with their whole life is, you know, has vanished. Yeah, I just read a poem last night about that, um, which escapes me. I'll try to find it, but it's. Uh... It's another rare poem in praise of marriage, and it's uh, he. The poet talks about going through that door, um, which the door is death, and that that there's one person left behind, and the the poignance of that. Um, and well, there's there's a there's a poem by Howard Nemiroff that's called, uh, called "Call It a Good Marriage," which is you should look at too. Maybe that's the one I'm thinking. Of. Yeah, and because uh, it, it ends up, you know, one of them should be there when the other dies. Is the way that it ends, um, but you know that it's 
you know, both of my parents, you know, are, you know, are gone, but I talk to them all the time. Yeah. And I think that's, that's what happens too. And in in a, if you lose somebody in a marriage, they're still there because your inner life and theirs has at some level merged. And so you have, in a sense, I know what they would have experienced. There's a wonderful sequence of poems by an Italian poet named Eugenio Montale, who won the Nobel Prize in 1975. And I translated this. It's called Motetti, you know, a motet, which is an, you know, an unaccompanied, sort of usually rather austere uh, choral piece. And it's about the premise of the poem, or the, the autobiographical origin of the poem, is he was in love with a, with a woman whom he never names and was secret for many years, named Irma Brandeis, there in 1920s and 1930s Italy. So you can sort of see what's going to happen, is that it comes a point where Irma Brandeis says, look, you know, I'm an American Jew, Italy's not a great place for me to be at. And so she leaves. And so the poem begins um, at the moment that he loses her and he knows he will never see her again. So, lo sai, debo riperderti e non posso, as it begins. You know this. I must lose you again, but I cannot. So the whole poem is about going through this grief but then about halfway through realizing that he has her because anything that happens to him, like a snowfall or seeing an animal or this, like that, he knows exactly how she would respond. And so he has the gift, in a sense, of her company, not physically, but spiritually. You know, and so that's the, you know, this, it's a very Dantescan poem in a sense, you know, this, the poet writing to a lady he'll never possess and things like that. And the funny thing is that, you know, nobody knew who the woman was. And just about when I translated the poem, uh, it came out. So I dedicated it to her. And I said to these people, and they all said, this poem was written to Irma? <laughs> you know, and uh, so it was really, you know, because people knew her, you know, uh, you know she taught Beautiful. Italian at Brand- Italian at Bard. Uh-huh. And, you know, she had generations of teachers, uh, you know, uh, and students that, you know, that had worked with her. Really but beautiful. Anyway, it's, a, it's a great poem. I, I had a, a, a widow uh, confide in me that she was still speaking to her husband after he had died and that her friends said, you need to get over that. And I said, no, you don't. <laughs> of course you talk to him every day. Why wouldn't you? I mean, why? why, why it, it's fascinating that people think that's some that you have to, quote, move on. Why wouldn't you let that person continue to enrich your life from a distance? Just Anglo-Saxon American culture does not understand grief. No, that's true. Italians understand grief. <laughs> Mexicans understand grief. I, you know, I think Jews understand yes, grief. Yes, I mean, do. you just, you know, these tribal people understand grief. And, and you know, and universes like, I mean, I once went to this funeral, you know, of a guy dropped dead in his 40s and his wife was there and she said, well, I don't, this should be a celebration. I don't want any crying. You know, we should all do this. And, all. and two weeks later, she had a nervous breakdown. Yeah. You know, you, you know, what you should do is rend your garments and yeah, scream cry. and cry, yeah. you know, and share the sorrow, you know, but if you try to deny it, because once again, if you, you know, if you resist your destiny, it drags you behind it. You know, if you Greatly. follow it, it guides you. Let's go back to your biography. Um, you mentioned in passing, I know it from the book, and I knew it from general in general, 
that you left a graduate program in comparative literature at Harvard to become an MBA student at Stanford at the Graduate School of Business. You joked that you were the first person who went to the GSB to become a poet. What were you thinking? I mean, that is such a bizarre transition. Let's just talk culturally. I understand it the was, idea that you wanted to have a job and you wanted to be an interesting it was job. That's eminently lovely. rational. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, here's the you know, very simple. Um, I, I should I tell listeners. Write- excuse me, Danny. I should tell listeners that you go on to be an executive at General Foods. Which you were also one of the only poets at General Foods, presumably. <laughs> I, I, I believe I was. Yeah. Uh, you know the um, part of what an artist creates is his or her own life. You know, part of being an artist, part of creativity, is to figure out how do you make your way in the world. Now, the, the um, so many activities in our society have been institutionalized. You know, you, there's institutional solutions to everything. And the institutional solution is to become a creative writing teacher in, in the United States for the problem I faced. But I didn't want to do that. And I, to this day, think that um, there are, is a significant artistic downside to working in the creative writing industry. Because, you know, you're for all kinds of I won't get into them, but I don't think it produces the best writing. Certainly doesn't produce the best uh, criticism about the arts. And so I had to make if I don't you know make a living. Now I looked at this. Wallace Stevens had been an insurance lawyer. T. S. Eliot had been a banker. Archibald McLeish was a lawyer and you know a member of the Roosevelt Brain Trust and uh, a journalist. He was editor of Fortune and. It, there were examples of men who had done other careers and had you know, been able to write. And so I, I'm a person with a tremendous capacity for work. I'm very good with numbers. And I think a poet actually is, is often better when they're good with numbers because, you know, m- m- meters and things like that are a kind of numerical mathematical design. And so I just said, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. You know, I, took this Stanford Literary Magazine, which had been bankrupt, and I revived it. I ran a film series at Stanford because I was a poor kid. I had to work my way through college. So I was always, you know, you know, you know, finding an angle, um, not, you know. And so, you know, I went there, and probably no one in the history of Stanford Business School has done less and still graduated than I did. Um, you know, but I, I passed, and I spent three hours every day reading and writing before I did my business school work because I, you know, I said, I have to do both of these things seriously. And I began publishing, um, you know, this. And so I, you know, I got through, you know, business school. Now, if for no other reason, I am glad that I went to Stanford business school because I met my wife, (laughs) you know, I met this girl and I knew, you know, I've been, had a lot of girlfriends and everything else, but I never really had the impulse to marry anyone. Uh, you know, I was young and also, the, you know, the, the, the matches weren't right. But I met her after about two weeks of knowing her. I said, this is the girl I want to marry. Now, it took me five years to convince her to do that, you know, but, you know, but it worked <laughs> eventually, just a, you know. That just attests fate, to her wisdom. Fate heart, never one fair lady. <laughs> um, and so, you know, and so I got through both and then I went into to New York. Uh, she wanted to work in New York. 
I did. I, I wanted to stay in California, uh, but and we, you know, we actually both ended up working at General Foods, which was so big of a you know company that we were, you know, you know, we didn't even see each other most days. And uh, I would work ten hours a day. I would come home, we'd have dinner, and then I would write every night. And my wife liked to read. She's a person with a great capacity for solitude. She likes to, you know, and. It was, you know, then on weekends, you know, if we went out at night, I would write during the day, you know, if I, if we did something in the day, I would write at night. So I would, it was a pattern of working, 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 because I didn't have a lot of time to write, but the continuity of time was enough. And it was a very simple way of leading your life. Um, I had a lot of debt to pay off, so we didn't spend a lot of money. We paid our debt off, you know, we, you know, we had a little apartment we lived in and then we you know we uh you know bought a townhouse eventually i paid my brother and my youngest brother and my sister's way to college because my parents were broke and we were happy uh when we had kids it got more complicated especially when we lost our first child where we both plunged into a grief that lasted the better part of a year until our next son was born but you know it was I was very happy. Then, uh, after doing this for 15 years, you know, 17 if I count the years in business school, being a business for 17 years, I published this article called Can Poetry Matter, which made me internationally famous. Um, and now I chose to use that fame differently from other people. And if I'd been, you know, if I'd been a, um, you know, you know, a, a, you know, was it Francis Fukumara? Uh, you know, Fukuyama. you know, type Fukuyama. Excuse me. You know, I would have done got on the lecture circuit, and yeah. I would have written the book and the sequel book and everything else. I said, no, I don't want to play the commercial game on this, but I do think I can now make my living as a writer. So I quit. I had one kid and another kid on the way, and I quit. And the next year, I essentially made no money at all. But within a couple of years, I was supporting the family as a writer. I did a number of projects, you know, and I worked all the time. And, you know, and so that, but but the the thing is, I only did what I wanted to do. I was offered a huge contract, I mean, an astonishing amount of money, if I wrote a book about how MBAs were ruining American business. You know, I said, I don't, and I told my wife, I said, you know, I got offered, you know, this much, you know, there's a huge amount of money because they had sold international rights for a book that hadn't existed. Um, and I said, you know, she said, what do you want to do? And I said, no, because if I do that, then I'm going to have to write another book like that and another book. It is, and, I, and I thought, this might be corny, of two roads diverged in the yellow wood. And sorry, I could not travel both and be one traveler. And I knew that uh, if you go this, I doubted I would ever be back again. Because, you, yeah. you know, knowing the way how road leads on to road. And, and I said, if I go down that road, you know, I'm not going to ever get back to what I want to. So I turned it down, and the, and the agent was just, he couldn't believe that. And the same thing, another person brought me, who had worked with me, who really liked me, brought me, I mean, offered me a million dollars. And this is like 30 years ago, you know, t- you know, uh, to, if I would become his partner. And I'm, as a, you know, I didn't have a million. I mean, I was a little, wow. But I said, you know, then I'm going to be, you know, doing running this, this, you know, it was a, it was a Spanish language, you know, uh, you know, ad agency 
run by a brilliant, crazy Cuban. And I like the guy. I could work with him. But do I really, you know, that's not what I want to do. And so, you know, I, I chose better to, you know, to, only to do the things that really spoke to me as a writer. And I'll, I'll tell you that the things I wrote from love, uh, completely outside the marketplace, uh, are the things that, on which my reputation is based. And which eventually, you know, allowed me to make a rather a relatively good learning you know, earnings as a poet, poet, and, you know, and, and prose writer. Well, it's a great luxury to be able to say no. Um, I like to say that you know, poverty is awful, but money is overrated. So it's yeah. uh, if you can avoid poverty, you should do what you love. Uh, but as a general piece of advice, it's not always the best advice. But if you can make a living, it doesn't have to be the best living. Do what you love. Um, Let's well, there's a great, a great um, Italian uh, mezzo-soprano, Ebe Stignani, you know, great meaty voice. You know, if you have people that are opera fans will know her from the 40s and 50s. And I remember reading an interview with her, and they're asking her this, that, and the other. She goes, success is the ability to say no. Yeah. When you're offered a part and you realize that's not the right part for me, you say no, uh, confident that something else will come along. So, so I really do. I mean, it's you know obvious, but I think I think a real artist has to know what he or she should be doing and what he or she should not be doing. And the marketplace is constantly trying to make encourage you to make bad choices. Now, I believe in the marketplace. I'm such a marketplace believer. But the fact is that what the marketplace does is give you a price. Uh, you have to determine what the value is. And you need to know your values, the values of your art, the values of your profession to be able to respond to the marketplace. So, you know, in some cases, if, I, if it, I need to do this, I will do it for free. I'd rather do it for free than not do it at all. In other cases, no matter what you offer me, I'm not going to do it. It's just not where I choose, where I know I should be going. And those few times where I do those things, I always regret it. I want to. I want to ask you a quick question about Wallace Stevens, who you mentioned, who um, was one of my dad's favorite poets. So when I was growing up, I'd always read his poetry, and I couldn't understand it. Um, and then I got older, and I couldn't understand it. So I took a class from a philosopher, uh, Dick Smythe, who was an extraordinary teacher of mine at the University of North Carolina. And he taught a class on the philosophy of Stevens' poems. I don't remember anything about that class. I, I wish I could take it right now. Um, but I was somewhat comforted by the fact that I think you said you, you don't have to care about Stephen's ideas, but about the sound of his poetry is music. And uh, I do get that. Uh, but yeah. but do you understand? Do those poems speak to you beyond the yeah, music? I understand, I understand Stephen's. It took me a long time to understand Stephen's because what you really have to do is just take literally everything he's saying. Because he says things that you say, no, no, he can't really mean that. Um, but, you know, what? In a very uh, simple condensation, here's what Stevens is doing. Stevens is trying to figure out how do you make sense of the world and existence once you take away the idea of God. You know, uh, you know what gives meaning to existence, and so he spends his whole career doing this and what he says is that humanity has to create 
the supreme fiction, which is you have to, you know, essentially you create the idea of God. And, um, you know, but it's a God that's based on man. You know, he's, he's very Nishitzian, uh, you know, in this, not, you know, you know, no will to power, but a lot of other Nishitzian ideas. And that you create these fictions by which give your life meaning. And so they're in, they are enabling f- fictions, but they're more than deceptions. You know, the, it's the only way you can create meaning is to create a construct, you know, which, you know, has virtues which you know, by which you live in. And, it, and he spends, he's very serious as a philosopher, very disciplined in his thinking. And that and when you look at the world, you have to see what's there and not see what's not there. And so, you know, he's right in the, in the in sort of the mainstream of modern philosophy. But significantly, on his deathbed, Wallace Stevens asked to be baptized in the Catholic Church. Whoa. And so, you know, at the, as he himself was facing eternity, uh, the idea that it was a fiction was not sufficient. And his friends, you know, would say that, you know, they would go to business trips to him because he would, some days he was, he was a strange, you know, he, everybody was terrified of him at Hartford Atkinson, he's huge, Insurance uh, temperamental man. And so he would just tell somebody, he didn't drive, he said, well, drive me to New York. So they drive to New York, they would have a fancy lunch, he would go to galleries and things like this. But he would always, when he went by a church, a Catholic church, he would just go in and just sit by himself, you know, for half an hour in silence. You know, and the people they didn't they didn't they had no idea what was going on, and you know, and I think what it was is he was he was somebody a poet who was actually an existential poet, which is what is the purpose of life? How do you get through life? Um, and he was a very private man, but I think it was I think it's significant that the supreme fiction that he articulated so magnificently was in the end perhaps not sufficient. Uh, to support his spirit. Well, let's close with a, it's really beautiful. Let's close with a discussion of criticism, the act of being a critic, the role of the critic. Uh, one of the stories in your book is the, what happened to you after you gave a bad review to James Dickey, <laughs> um, who wrote two poems. I love um, falling and the bee. You mentioned falling in there. Um, I love the bee. But you say, I'm going to quote, you say, criticism should be a conversation about the experience of reading a literary work. It is not the paid patter of public relations. It should be an honest account of the critics' reactions. Our relation to a book, like most other things in life, is usually mixed. We like some aspects of the thing and not others. To articulate the slippery experience accurately is the challenge of criticism, even in the modest form of a book review. Uh, and then you go on to talk about the trust between the reader and the and the critic. Uh, criticism has become generally in today's world, I would say, the paid pattern of public relations. And you allude to that, I think, in the Can Poetry Matter essay, essentially, that there's this club that people, uh, as somebody said it, you know, it's the New York Review of each other's books, uh, and they tend to be positive. Uh, you will occasionally get a, 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 a negative review of, you know, that's designed. The editor picks yeah. somebody that they know will hate a book and they get them to savage it. It's an ugly, sometimes entertaining, but an ugly art. Um, yeah. Talk about criticism and, and, and that challenge as an economist I look at and I think, you know, the incentives 
Rhonda's criticism are not so great. So it is part of the problem. Well, no, there are there are most almost no incentives to write honest criticism. But let me just start with the idea of criticism. If you and I went to a movie together, as we walked out, what will we talk about? Whether we we talk it. about our reactions yeah. to the movie. So criticism, you know, comes out of the most normal human behavior, which is that if you experience a work of art, a concert, you read a book or whatever, uh, you talk about it, you share it. That's why people like book clubs because you know they like to read books, but it's more fun to read a book if somebody else is reading it. You could talk about it. You know, actually, you know, our family has a book club every year. You know, we pick a book, and that's that's what what Cousin Bet by Balzac is. You know, we did we done uh, the Red and the Black. We did Anna Karenina. You know, Catch Twenty Two. So you know, we pick we read a book together, and and, and it adds resonance. Sure. So as a uh, and so there's a really we're in a culture that has too many books, too many movies. You know. Uh, in the old days, before the pandemic, too many plays, too many concerts. And so people want some guidance as well as some ability to reflect, you know, what should they pay attention to? And so I think the health of the culture depends in a weird way as much upon the critics and the editors as it does on the artists. Because without them, they don't have a conversation with a broader public. And it's in poetry, there is a long tradition that goes back to Dryden, to Samuel Johnson, to Coleridge, uh, you know, to Matthew Arnold, T.S. Eliot, you go on and on and on, of the poet critic. Yeah. Poets write about their own art from the inside. It's, it's an international tradition. Montale did it, Baudelaire did it, et cetera, et cetera. And so I've always uh, thought of myself as a poet, but also a poet who's a writer. And, the, you know, I write about poetry, I write about music, I write about culture. And people need, uh, people actually enjoy an article about poetry where you quote things and you explain things because it allows them to enter the imagination and they can uh, make the decision on their own whether this is a writer they want to pick up on. So it's been a fundamental part of my my own writing since, the, since high school. And I've never stopped writing criticism. I now no longer write reviews because I'd rather write a, a longer piece. In fact, I just wrote a monstrous piece, you know, 14,000 word essay on Baudelaire that is going to be the introduction for a new edition of The Flowers of Evil. It'll come out in the fall. And, you know, and I, and I like to, to take, you know, talk about the author's life, but good prose. Now, the trouble with criticism is the academic criticism is almost entirely unreadable. You can love an author. You'll pick up a book from you know uh, Yale University Press, and it's not actually written to be read. Yeah. It's written to be evaluated and give somebody a promotion or you know uh, or tenure because they're writing it in ways that demonstrate their worthiness for this kind of institutional employment. They're not writing for the reader. They're writing for the committee. And so you're in a situation once again where you have hundreds, probably thousands of literary books coming out on poetry every year, of which perhaps a dozen are readable. And uh, so there's a, there's a real need for these. And people respond with enormous generosity when they come across a, you know, a book like that. And so, you know, one of the great, uh, maybe, the, maybe the best poet uh, critic of the age, uh, a guy named Clive James, you know, died, you know, last year. He was in England, it was a te uh, t 
TV celebrity. He would do travel shows and things like that. Americans have seen him. He's an Australian who lived in England, did great cities of the world and things like this. Very popular as a TV critic and as a TV personality, but his secret vice was poetry and poetry criticism. And he wrote it with, you know, an, an urbane Australian panache. And, uh, and I like that because, you know, you can't, you couldn't, I mean, I remember he was uh, reviewing a book of memoirs uh, by Brezhnev, and he said that um, if this book were taken into an open field, opened and read aloud, the birds would fall dead from the sky. <laughs> you know, and it was just about, you know, what an official Soviet autobiography was like. And, uh, you know, and so but the language was alive. And so I try to write prose in which the language is alive, where, you know, you can you can bring your whole life into my book, and I'm acknowledging it. See, this is the thing that I think a lot of act critics and a lot of poets feel, is that unless you're always writing an unfinished work, I have a poem which is not finished until you read it. It's not finished until you are able to bring your life into my poem. If it's just about my life, it doesn't work for you. And so that's one of the things that I think the critical things I learned, not immediately as a poet, but as I began to write poetry, which was to give the reader many doorways into which to enter the poem. And what it usually means is I cut things out. Uh, if I could find, uh, you know, so I'm gonna, I'll, I want to read you a, a six-line poem. Having just made a mistake in a poem, I'm, I'm afraid almost to uh, to recite it. But it's got a story. Uh, I was asked by NPR to write a poem for New Year's Day. This is you know twenty some years ago, and so I wrote a very elegant. I think it was a thirty two line poem about the idea of New Year's. And then I, after we you know recited it, you know recorded it, um, you know I was now going to publish it. And I looked at it, well, that's a little too long. So I took it 32 to 28. Then I took it from 28 to 24. And I cut it down to 20. Then it became 18. And I said, well, maybe it's going to be a sonnet. But it went to 16, then it went to 12. So it never even stopped at the sonnet phase. And then it went uh, shorter. And finally, it ended up being six lines long. It had nothing whatsoever to do with New Year's. And uh, the... <laughs> And I think it's a better poem because of that. It's called Unsaid. So much of what we live goes on inside. The diaries of grief, the tongue-tied ache of unacknowledged love are no less real for having passed unsaid. What we conceal is always more than what we dare confide. Think of the letters that we write our dead. You know, and so, and that's a poem that I think everybody will hear and understand a little bit differently because I'm trying to, in a sense, create a, a, a lens by which we could sort of see our own experience. Think of the letters that we write our dead. Now, that's maybe a line that somebody who's 15 can't understand. But as you go on in life, you know, uh, it's something that you understand all too well. My guest today has been Dana Joya. 
His book is Studying with Miss Bishop, but you also could pick up 99 Palms and perhaps enjoy those as well. Dana, thanks for being part of EconTalk. It's been great fun. So, bye-bye. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.